Tonight we continue in our series through the Ten Plagues narrative of the book of Exodus, and we are in chapter 9 this evening. So turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9, and listen as I read the passage we'll be focusing on tonight, Exodus 9, verse 13, all the way to Exodus 10, verse 29. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning, and present yourself before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants, and your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, Get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire rained down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field, in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord. For there has been enough of God's thunder and hell. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hell, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the ember were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh, and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again, and hardened his heart, even his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, 
for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show you these signs, pardon me, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses, and the houses of all your servants, and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen, from the day that they came on earth to do to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let these let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters, and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you, if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, and man among you, and serve the Lord. For that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt. And the Lord brought the east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had, as had never been before, nor ever would be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land, and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had a light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. 
Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. This is God's word. Let's ask for his help as we look to study it more deeply. O God, who inspired the writing of this text, we ask now for the help of your Holy Spirit. In the preaching of it and in the hearing, we ask that your Spirit will move among us, working in us that for which you purposed it to be recorded in the first place. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Of course, there is much in the seventh, eighth, and ninth plagues that is similar to the first six. There is some overlap, as I said at the outset of beginning to preach through this ten plagues. There is much that overlaps throughout the whole thing. As we try to take three at a time, we're trying to observe what's happening, which is unique to each set of three plagues. As we have seen, there are three distinct sets of plagues before the final culminating tenth plague. And we've also just been trying to just point out certain things along the way, which may be common, but it'd be too much to fit in to one sermon if we were to take all ten plagues at once. As we come tonight to the section that I just read, Exodus 9.13 through to the end of chapter 10, what is particularly in view, what is uniquely in view in this section is the pride, the arrogance of Pharaoh, the hardness of his heart, his utter resistance to what God is requiring of him, his hard-heartedness. Two statements in Chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, give us the lens through which we look at the 7th, 8th, and 9th place. God is bringing things to a head. We're approaching that 10th and decisive and culminating play. God is bringing things to a head, and it is now the 11th hour, so to speak. For those who have, of you who have never heard that phrase, the 11th hour is basically like the last minute. Past the 11th hour, it's too late. The 11th hour is kind of the last minute, the last chance. Here we have before us, basically, it is the 11th hour. Will Pharaoh repent or not before God takes decisive action? And what we see in our text this evening is that Pharaoh will not repent, even now at the 11th hour. In Verses 14 and 15 of chapter 9, as I said, we see two phrases which give us a lens through which we should look at these seventh, eighth, and ninth plagues. We'll look at each of those phrases, and then we will look at the right response to these truths. That's what we're going to do this evening. And the first phrase that we see through which we should look at this whole section is 
in verse 14 of chapter 9, there is none like me, or there is none like Yahweh in all the earth. This is what God is trying to show. This is similar to what has already gone in what has already transpired in the first six plagues. This is this has been stated in various ways several times throughout the narrative. This is what God is revealing fundamentally. He is without peer or rival in all the earth. There is none like Yahweh. There is none like Yahweh in any category. God has no peer, He has no rival, He has no equal of any sort. Even when we speak of God's communicable attributes, as opposed to, say, His incommunicable attributes, meaning things like love and mercy and the capacity to improve things or whatever, think ways in which we might to some extent resemble God. There's a whole bunch we could list. Even when we speak of God's communicable attributes as opposed to His incommunicable attributes like eternity and omnipotence and so on and so forth. Even when we say that we are like God by virtue of being made in His image and in His likeness. Even when we're speaking about God's communicable attributes, those things in which, in some sense, and to some degree, we share. Even when we speak about being like God by virtue of being made in His image or likeness, we are still profoundly distinct from God by virtue of being creations rather than the Creator. Though we might share some of God's communicable attributes, we are not therefore peers to God or rivals to God. Though we are made in God's image, though we are made in God's likeness and bear maybe some resemblance to Him, we are not His peers, we are not His rivals. There is none like Yahweh in any category with respect to any of His attributes, any of His perfections. There is none like Yahweh. However, what is in view this evening in particular is God's power and the truth that there is no rival or peer to God in terms of His power. The sorcerers who depend on the power of the gods of Egypt have already exhausted themselves. Those guys dropped out after the second Play, the second round, so to speak. This was a ten-round fight, and these guys couldn't answer the bell for the third round. These guys are out of the picture. God has demonstrated that He can do what the gods of Egypt cannot do. They are not His peers. They are not His rivals. The sorcerers recognize by now that there is no peer to Yahweh. When they couldn't produce the third plague, when they couldn't reproduce the third plague, they said, this is the finger of God. By the sixth plague, they couldn't even appear before Yahweh because of the boils. They know. Pharaoh's advisors, even, are beginning to see it. They say to Pharaoh, in verse 7 of chapter 10, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the man go, 
that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? These men are beginning to see it. We cannot stand toe-to-toe with Yahweh and exchange blows. In this 10-round fight, we are losing. Let these people go. There is none like Yahweh in all the earth, essentially. The sorcerers have recognized it. These people who are servants of Pharaoh, his advisors, have recognized it. There is none like Yahweh in all the earth. After highlighting his wisdom in Job 38 and 39, God speaks about his power in Job 40 and 41. Job has been questioning both God's wisdom and God's power. If God is wise, then why is he doing this to me? Perhaps God is wise and just doesn't have the power to rescue me from this thing. God is in the dark, so to speak, being questioned, being examined by Job. The Lord answers in 38 to 41. First, reminding Job of his unparalleled wisdom. There is none like me with respect to wisdom. In 38 and 39 and 40, the Lord says to Job, after already berating Job for two chapters, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. In other words, I've had enough. I, I, I dropped my case. I dropped the charges against you. But then the Lord answered Job out of the world and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make a note to me. Will you put me... Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like this? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. Look on everyone who is proud and abasing. Look on everyone who is proud and bring them low. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. The Lord goes on and says, Behold, behemoth, this giant creature, in 41, can you draw out Leviathan with the hook? He just, again, berates Job for two whole chapters. But what we see here is God speaking about his own arm and his voice which thunders and the way that he clothes himself with majesty and dignity, clothes himself with glory and splendor and pours out the overflowings of his anger upon the proud and abases the proud. Yahweh looks upon everyone who is proud and brings him low. Yahweh treads down the wicked where they stand. Yahweh hides them all in the dust together. And this is exactly what Yahweh is doing to Pharaoh in our narrative tonight. We think about the power 
We may think about the power of God also from Isaiah 40, which we studied at length over the last couple of months. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? The Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian, every ocean, Arctic. Fit right in little, this little dip in the middle of God's hand, so to speak. Who has marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth, all the land mass, all the dirt of the earth in a measuring cup? Weigh the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Behold, skipping down a little bit to verse 15, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Yes, even this mighty nation of Egypt, which was the world power at the time, what is it to God? It's just a drop in a bucket. The nations are counted as dust on the scales. All the nations, including Egypt, are as nothing before Him. They are accounted by Him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with Him? The gods of Egypt? Remember, they couldn't come out for the third round. They were done after round two. An idol? A craftsman casts it, and goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. This thing that you have to make, it didn't make you, you have to make it. This thing that you gotta make sure you hook up chains to so that it doesn't tip over? Come on. <laughs> to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One, verse 25 of Isaiah 40. Lift up your eyes on high and see the stars, right? Who created these? He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Listen, there is none like Yahweh. He holds all the waters in the hollow of his hand. The entire universe, however many, I forget the number, billions of light years. It's like from here to here. He, he names all the stars. He calls them all up. He's the one who brings down kings, looks upon the proud, proud of the earth and brings them up. It's because of God that nations and empires rise and fall. Why is Rome not still the superpower of the earth? You can go and look at all the historical details and the decisions that were made and the actions of men. But listen, at the end of the day, it's because Yahweh brought down that empire. Yahweh raises up men like Pharaoh for his purposes and Yahweh brings down men like Pharaoh for his purposes. He who created and formed all these things, including the stars, and calls them all by name, he does with them what he pleases. There is none like Yahweh. This is the message that God wants to get across to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians. Some in Egypt are starting to see it. We see even in our text, the warning is that you've got to bring in your slaves and your livestock into safe shelter in verse 19. And in verse 20 we see, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. Look, there were people in Egypt. The sorcerers were beginning to see it. The advisors to Pharaoh were beginning to see it. Common folk were Egyptians under Pharaoh's leadership. They heard about this threat of the hail and they hurried to bring in 
their slaves and their livestock into safe shelter. People were beginning to see we cannot stand toe-to-toe with Pharaoh, or pardon me, with Yahweh. We cannot stand toe-to-toe with Yahweh and trade blows. It's not going to work. We are not peers or rivals to Yahweh. Even our gods are not peers or rivals to Yahweh. These people were, were beginning to say, look, we should, we should throw in the towel on this fight. We're getting beat up badly. It's dangerous for us not to quit, not to resign, not to yield to Yahweh, because there is none like Him in all the earth. Some people were beginning to see it. And this is what God is doing. This is what He's revealing. This is what He's bringing to a head. It is now the 11th hour. God is bringing, moving this progression towards the 10th decisive culminating plague. And God says to Pharaoh, moving on now to our second phrase, in verse 15 of chapter 9, by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. In view of who Yahweh is, in view of His unrivaled, unparalleled power, God says, look, it's like I've been just toying with you. I'm, I'm like a cat and you're like a mouse and I'm playing with my dinner. Look, I couldn't have by now reached out my hand and just struck you. I could have made quick work of you. But like a master tactician, I'm making one move after another to reduce you to nothing. That God had not yet cut off Pharaoh and his host from the earth was a display of his strength, not a function of inability, given who Yahweh is. God wanted this whole scenario to be drawn out in order that he would be able to display his own power and ability. By way of analogy, we are not very impressed when a sports team beats another team that's worse than them. That's terrible. If you if a sports team beats the worst team in the league, and you go and start bragging about it to your friends, oh, you see the win last night? Your friends just say, well, that's nothing. That was like the weakest team in the league. That's nothing. I'm not really impressed by that win. But when a sports team starts beating one strong team after another, people begin to take notice. Oh. Look, these guys, maybe we've got to give them more credit. Because they're beating one strong team after another. God wanted to display His power. And it would be more of an impressive display if Pharaoh mustered up all his strength and all his fortitude and all this sorcery, and ultimately we're going to see his whole army and try to resist God's will and God's still overpowering. That would be more impressive. It would put on display more of God's ability if he drew it out like that. And so this was God's purpose in this whole thing. Look at 19, or pardon me, 16 of chapter 9. 
For this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God's purpose is that Pharaoh will resist him, and that God will continue to exercise his strength, and little by little, one by one, make one move after another, until Pharaoh and all the hosts and everyone who hears about this story, even for generations to come. It says in the passage we read that you may tell your son and you may tell your grandson about this whole thing. This is God's purpose. And in a sense, there was no other option for Pharaoh. For as Romans 9 asks rhetorically, who can resist God's will? If God hardened Pharaoh, who can resist God's will? Romans 9 teaches us that God had decreed that Pharaoh's heart would be hard towards God. He hardens whom he wills. This is what Romans 9 tells us. And whatever God has decreed will come to pass. If God has decreed that you wear a blue shirt tomorrow, you're going to wear a blue shirt tomorrow. It's just going to happen. But we don't make our decisions based on God's decrees, which we can't know anyway. I don't know, I don't know what color shirt the Lord has decreed for you to wear tomorrow, and neither do you, and neither are you responsible for finding that out. We just know that whatsoever God has decreed comes to pass. And in this case, God had decreed that Pharaoh would have a hard heart towards him, and that this thing would be drawn out in order to display God's power. But we don't make our decisions based on God's decrees, which we cannot know anyway. Neither does Pharaoh, or should Pharaoh, base his decisions upon God's decrees. We should base our decisions on God's precepts, which are given to us in His Word. What He has revealed to us about His will. What He has revealed to us about those things which we ought to do. And God had revealed His will to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Look, is anyone confused? about what Pharaoh should do at this point. We know from what the Bible tells us what Pharaoh will do, but what ought Pharaoh to do? Is it really confusing? His sorcerers know, his advisors know. Look, let the man go. How long is this man to be a snare to us? Let the man go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? Has, have Moses and Aaron been unclear? <laughs> Let my people go. Let my people go. Thus says the Lord. Let my people go. When we move from speaking about God's decree, that Pharaoh's heart would be hard and that he would show his power, and we move towards thinking about God's precepts and God's commands. The option was always there to Pharaoh to repent, to humble himself, to join God's team, so to speak, as God's team proves to victory. Pharaoh could put in for a trade, so to speak, in order that he might not be on the losing side, but on the winning side. The option is always there, Old Testament and New, to repent, to believe, to take shelter under the wings of the God of Israel. 
even Gentiles do this throughout the Old Testament. We think of Naaman and Syria and Rahab, the Canaanite woman from Jericho. You think of others. The option is always there in terms of precept. Thus there was mercy in God's forbearance. Mercy even in this process of humiliation. Mercy even as God drives Pharaoh to his knees and then down on his face and eventually buries him at the bottom of the Red Sea. There was mercy in this for God's will was proclaimed to Pharaoh Pharaoh had every opportunity to repent, to humble himself, to change course. Mercy. As unbelievers suffer, whether as young people through tragedy or crises that are exceptional, that life throws their way, or as unbelievers suffer merely in the process of aging, as much as stripped away. There is mercy. God is holding out Christ to this world, beckoning all who are willing to come. Even as God breaks our idols, smashes our idols, the scripture says when God disciplines a man for sin, he consumes like a moth what is dear to him. God so often takes away our help, takes away our finances, takes away loved ones, takes away our abilities, takes away all of these things which are precious to us. As he humiliated Pharaoh and showed him that his resources were not as sure, not as steady, not as solid as he thought they were. that they were fleeting hopes, fleeting sources of security and safety. God does the same thing to us in our lives as human beings in the 21st century. And as God does that to unbelievers, and as they begin to see one of life's temporal glories fade, and then another, and then another, and as they begin to see their resources dwindle, perhaps their bank account is getting fatter, but they themselves are getting older and will be less able to use the money. Look, it happens to all of us. God brings us low until finally we are buried. Perhaps not at the bottom of the Red Sea, but buried nonetheless, six feet under in a wooden box. As God humbles us, as God humiliates us, as God smashes our idols, as God demonstrates that we are like grass that is here today and gone tomorrow and only He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. Even so, there is mercy. God is always holding out Christ Jesus to this world, beckoning any who are willing to come. We know from the Scripture that God has His elect. We know that God has His decreed purpose, that there are those whom He will save and those whom He will not save. But for us, we are not responsible for finding out God's decrees. We 
should try to figure out whether we're relaxed, whether or not we should try to repent and trust in God's mercy, because, well, whatever God has decreed is going to happen anyway. That's not the path that we're to take, just as Pharaoh ought not to have just thought to himself, well, whatever God has decreed will happen. Look, the precept is there. For Pharaoh, let my people go. For you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The precept is there. The mercy is there. Even as you wear out, even as God wears you out, even as your life circumstances which come from God's hand wear you out, the mercy is there. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The right response to this mercy, the right response as you get worn out by your life circumstances, by God's providence for you, the right response is not hard-hearted lip service like Pharaoh. I want to highlight Pharaoh's response. Even at the eleventh hour here, the seventh, eighth, and ninth plagues. Look at verse 17. God says to Pharaoh, You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Look, Pharaoh's servants were not exalting Pharaoh against Yahweh. Pharaoh's servants said, Can't you see that the land is ruined? Let the people go. They don't think that he is God's peer or God's rival. But Pharaoh still does. Look at 27 and 28. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have saved. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Wow. That, that's about as good of a confession of sin as you can get. So often, so often we ourselves, even as Christians, we soft pedal and say, well, you know, maybe I didn't do it the best way that I could have. Well, yes, I made a mistake. Look, look how clear he is. Look how specific. This time, I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. There are no excuses. There's just a specific, clear confession of sin. A justification of God. Plead with the Lord, verse 28, for there has been enough of God's thunder in hell. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. If the Israelites left Egypt at this time and never came back, and Pharaoh never went after them, I might be inclined to think that Pharaoh became a Christian, so to speak. This is the exactly correct language of turning from your sin and repenting. This, this is the exact kind of response that you would look for in a person who no longer resists God's word, but accepts God's word, that the world really is the way that God says it is, justifying God instead of themselves, and so on and so forth. But that's not the way that the situation plays out. Look at 34 and 35. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. He had his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go. You see that it was all tough. Again, 
we're reminded of the truth that you can have a Christian way of speaking and yet not, yet not have a Christian heart. That you can get the outward things right without the inward experiences. There was no inward heartfelt contrition and repentance in Pharaoh. It was just all talk. 10, 7 to 11. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if I ever let you go, and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go to men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. Again, this unwillingness, even at the eleventh hour, even as these plagues intensify, even as God has already spoken to them, look, it's going to get worse. I'm doing this in order that you may see that there is none like you. Still, at the eleventh hour, Pharaoh will not let the people go. 16 and 17 of chapter 10. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God to remove this death from me. Again, the right kind of words, but we see that they're words only because in 20, we read the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of Israel go. And in 24 to 28, we see Pharaoh again refusing to let the people go. And finally, this is the end of the matter. Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. This is basically a guy pretty much dying on his deathbed in the hospital. And there's an evangelist who comes to visit him. And the response is, get away from me. Take care, never to see my face again. It's the 11th hour. God has basically said as much in chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. This time I will send my plagues on you yourself, and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go. God has basically said, look, it's going to get real intense from here, because I am going to humble you. I am going to bring you to your knees. There's this mercy of chances, proclamation to them, again, of the precepts of God. But what is the response? Get away from me. The right response to the truth that God's power is unparalleled. And that he is orchestrating the events here as he orchestrates the events in our lives 
to show us in the end, at least, if not before, the truth of these things, to humble us, to humiliate us, to wreck us, to bring us low, all the while declaring, turn to me and live. The response to these truths ought not to be Pharaoh's. Perhaps some lip service, but ultimately hard heartedness. Get away from me. Rather, the opposite. Repentance and humility. We don't have an example of it in this passage. The right response is implied rather than demonstrated. We see the right response by way of via negativa, by negative example. It's the opposite of Pharaoh, isn't it? What would have been the right response? Along the talk, action, reverence for God, belief in His Word, being guided by principles and truth instead of feelings which ebb and flow. Apparently Pharaoh gets caught up in how bad the plagues are. Oh, okay, I will let the people go. And then he gets a little more comfortable. Okay, I won't let the people go. You see how he's guided just by his impulses and by his feelings instead of what's true. What we ought to do is we ought to have reverence for God in our hearts. We ought to see that there is none like him. And desire to bring our lives into conformity to his precepts. To believe his words. To give whatever kind of response is called for by his words. If it's threatening, we ought to tremble. If it's gospel promises, we ought to be comforted and trust them. If it's laws, we ought to obey them. Whatever his word calls for, we ought to give that right response. We ought to be guided by the truth instead of our feelings. We have to do the opposite here of Yahweh, or pardon me, of Pharaoh, in response to who Yahweh is and what he's doing. We see in this passage, obviously, an example of unbelief. Unbelievers, therefore, should do the opposite of what is in this passage. And as I said, believe, reverence Yahweh. Believe His Word. Respond accordingly to His Word. Be guided by truth instead of your feelings. Obviously, that is what belief would look like. But if that's what belief would look like in the first place, then that's what the life of faith or belief will look like. And so for Christians, we can be guided here also by Pharaoh's negative example. We also ought not to let ourselves get like this even in measure. We ought not to, even at times and in places and in pockets, be like Pharaoh. We ought never to let ourselves get hard-hearted like this, where we fail to respond to God's Word as we ought to. Where people come to speak God's Word to us and we say, get away from me. We ought not to be like Pharaoh, who did not fear the word of the Lord and presumably left his slaves and his livestock in the fields, but we ought to yield to God the response that his word calls for. We ought not to exalt ourselves as if we were peers or rivals to God, but recognize that there is none like Yahweh and get ourselves in right relationship to Him. This is what the Christian life looks like in the beginning 
It's more than just walking the aisle, praying a prayer, signing a card. It's this reorientation of our lives with respect to who Yahweh is and what He calls for from us by means of His Word. And that's what it looks like all the way through. That's what biblical Christianity is. Perhaps it's the 11th hour for some of you. You may not know it, but your time may be short. Perhaps it's the 11th hour. Perhaps some watching online is your 11th hour. Of course, if you're in, inflicted with some sort of disease, you do know it's your 11th hour. Of course, if you're extremely aged, you know that it's your 11th hour. But perhaps you don't know. It still may be your 11th hour. We ought to understand that a time is coming when it will be too late to repent. Pharaoh couldn't change his mind when, when the waters of the Red Sea came crashing down upon him. There must have been that moment where he realized there is none like Yahweh in the earth. As he and his chariot saw the walls of water coming down on them. There must have been that realization. But by then it was past the 11th hour. It was too late. There was no repenting beyond that point. There will be a day when Christ returns, when the whole world will look on him, even on him who may have pierced, even those who pierced him. And the tribes of the earth will wail on the mountain. And unbelievers will call on the mountains to fall on them in order that they may hide themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. At that point, there will be no second chance. There will be no opportunity to repent. You may repent at the 11th hour, but you may not repent beyond the 11th hour. There's a quote that is attributed to Augustine in some debate whether he actually said it or not, but it doesn't really matter who said it, it's a good quote. In reference to the two thieves, one crucified on either side of Jesus, he said, do not despair. One of the thieves was saying, do not presume. One of the thieves was damned. You see? You may believe at the 11th hour, and you may hear, as it were, the words of Jesus to you on your deathbed, this day you will be with me in paradise. But there will be a point beyond which you may no longer repent. And God's justice in your damnation will be praiseworthy. As the justice of God in the humiliation of Egypt, in the ruin of that empire, was praiseworthy. And for eternity, we will sing the glory of the justice of God in the damnation of the wicked 
That's a sobering thought. Understand that there is mercy. That Christ is held out as a Savior to any and to all who will come. Jesus himself said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What about Pharaoh? Yeah, even Pharaoh. If Pharaoh had come, hypothetically, Christ would not have cast him. And that mercy will be likewise Christ for eternity. Everything that God does in his dealings with this world will be Christ for eternity. The justice of God, where he has poured out his justice upon individuals and nations and empires and brought them low and humiliated them and in the end damned them, that justice will be praised. But also the mercy of God in Christ held out to a world in rebellion towards him, taken advantage of by many, a multitude so large that no one can count, a multitude from every tribe and language and people and nation. That mercy also will be praised, along with the justice for eternity. So we'll repent and believe. Don't be like Pharaoh, who hardened his heart towards God, even past the eleventh hour. Whether it's the dawn of your life, the early morning, the noonday of your life, the afternoon of your life, the evening of your life, the twilight of your life, or the eleventh hour. Whatever hour it may be, come in faith to Christ Jesus. Stop resisting the call of God to repent and believe. Understand that God will be praised one way or another by His dealings with you, for His dealings with you. Either the justice of God will be praised in your damnation as you stubbornly refuse to come to Christ, or the mercy of God will be praised in your salvation as God saves a sinner like you. One way or another, God will be praised. And for those of us who are Christians, that there is no one like God in all the earth. It's not a terrible thing to consider. Not a fearful thing to consider. But a wonderful thing to consider. It's grounds. It's a basis to adore Him. Let's do that now. Let's adore our Savior. Singing in response, Jesus, there's no one like you.